good deal of uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, she's also going to be doing a workshop in June uh, over at CIIS uh, in San Francisco, uh, if you're in the area there. Uh, it's a talk and a workshop on June 23rd and 24th uh, from 10 to 5 uh, call it, uh, called Sustaining Activism and Well-Being. And uh, we'll give her a chance uh, before she leaves to uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, and also after our interview tonight, uh, Pat, our, uh, our roving reporter, uh, has sent in a couple news stories I want to share with you. Um, you know, some good news for a change um, because there are signs of hope uh, for the Indu River dolphins. Uh, did you even know there were dolphins on, in the Indu River? Um, and also, too, um, we found some Democrats with a spine. Uh, South Carolina Democrats uh, have killed uh, the Senate's uh, geo. Well, the Senate's plans to um, uh, ban abortion uh, with, uh, you know, with a days-long filibuster. So we will uh, talk a little bit about that uh, at the very end of the show. Uh, but first, um, let me tell you a little bit more about uh, tonight's guest. I'll introduce you to uh, uh, Ashoka by her um, bio, and um, I invite her to correct me uh, on her name if um, I've suddenly put the emphasis on the wrong syllable or something. Um, anyway, uh, uh uh, she is. Uh, she's been educated at the University of Sri Lanka uh, and at Yale University, where she received her PhD in sociology. Uh, she served on the faculties of Brandeis University, Georgetown University, and Mount Holyoke College, where she received tenure and was also the chair of the Women's Studies Program. She's uh, also taught at the European University for Peace, Colorado College, and the California. Institute for Integral Studies. Um, she's the author of the books Colonialism in Sri Lanka, A Women, Population, and Global Crisis, The Separatist Conflict in Sri Lanka, Sustainability and Well-Being, The Middle Path to Environment, Society, and Economy, and numerous other publications on South Asia, global political economies, ethnicity, gender, ecology. She's given hundreds of presentations, including an address at the 61st session of the United Nations General Assembly and keynote lectures at International Women's Studies and South Asian Studies conferences. She's also given uh, numerous media interviews on CNN, Al Jazeera, BBC, NPR, Bloomberg News, and on Asian and global uh, political, economic, and environmental issues. She's written uh, columns on global environmental and social issues in the Huffington Post, and she serves on the boards of a number of publications and organizations, including Critical Asian Studies, Interfaith Moral Action on Climate, and the International Buddhist Association of America. Another fine, fine guest with an impeccable credentials um, on the show here, uh, sharing with us her wisdom, um, you know, for listeners and for our archives. So let me welcome to the show uh, Ashoka Benderigay. Well, thank you very much, Karen. It's really an honor and pleasure to be on your show, which I've also enjoyed in the past. So thanks for this opportunity. 
Well, thank you, and I hope I'm 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 I'm, I'm getting your name close. <laughs> yes, yes, I sure um, it, mm-hmm. it, it, and not murdering it too badly. I, no, I apologize no. if I am. It's not my intent. Um, so uh, this topic uh, that uh, we're talking about tonight, uh, Buddhism, feminism, and ecology, um, you know, most of us here uh, probably think those uh, those things are opposing ideas. You know, Buddhism we usually think of as very patriarchal, um, and, uh, and it being patriarchal, it would maybe be opposed uh, to feminism as well as um, – um, you know, you know, we think of patriarchy as sort of a dominator, um, you know, uh, you know, way of seeing the world and acting in the world, which is usually in opposition to the environment and ecology. So, I guess I need to ask you, you know, where are you seeing the connections uh, between these three? Please enlighten us. Right, right. I know it may seem antithetical on the surface, um, but actually at the core they are quite similar and they share a lot uh, in the sense that all three um, philosophies, worldviews, are based on sort of a non-essentialism. They do not recognize a fixed self or any fixed entity as such, um, whether it's... um, you know, uh, different ethnic groups, um, gender, or even uh, uh, biological organisms, that things are always evolving and changing and in a state of flux, you know, which is sort of the law of nature. And um, just going back to something that was said before in terms of Buddhism, of course, in practice, uh, uh, historically, Buddhism, like most other religions have imbibed patriarchal tendencies, but Buddhist teaching at its core is genderless in the sense that the Buddha was somewhat of a revolutionary in that he said that um, both men and women uh, had the potential to be awakened, uh, to have spiritual liberation. And he was perhaps the first founder of a religion that opened the monastic order to women. So those were very revolutionary, and those things are much more at the core of the teaching um, and upholding um, equality than, you know, some of the the traditions that have come to be developed over time. But anyway, going back to the issue of this, yeah. Well, and, well and, and my comment to my comment to that was, you know, maybe in a way uh, similar to Christianity in the sense that Jesus uh, seemed much more egalitarian uh, and and about love and the poor, but his teachings have been corrupted and distorted to sort of um, you know fit uh, the agenda of of uh, the patriarchy and the church. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of different factors impinge on h- how these teachings, you know, have been corrupted or the, the disparity between the theory and practice. And one of the reasons that the female order of monastics was wiped out uh, was because of uh, proliferation of various wars, uh, particularly ethno-religious wars. So, you know, there were so many different factors that over time 
um, you know, created this disparity between the original teachings and the practice. Um, but going back to your earlier question about the what unites these seemingly disparate uh, uh, philosophies is, in, in, a, in addition to them being uh, non-essentialist, sort of seeing things as evolving and changing, is also the emphasis on interdependence and non-dualism, that things are uh, dependent on each other, that uh, uh, whether it's an individual or a biological organism or gender, we don't exist separate uh, as separate entities. We, it's always relational and interdependent, and all these philosophies uh, emphasize that. And also they call for uh, action and agency, not passivity. Even Buddhism, which some people see as more of a passive religion, if you really sort of get into that core of the teachings in terms of what is referred to as the Eightfold Noble Path, it really clays, uh, lays out uh, ethical guidelines for social action and engagement, uh, right livelihood, for example, right speech, uh, you know, those are guidelines for engaging in, the, in society. So the notion of socially engaged Buddhism is not entirely a new thing. It can be traced to the original teachings in terms of uh, application of the uh, teachings beyond sort of the individual to uh, organization of the society. So these okay. uh, philosophies actually support each other. They, they are not antithetical. Okay. And, All right. Yeah. And, and 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 you believe at this time uh, they're particularly important that they're that they all should be in play, so to speak. Yes. I mean, given the enormity of the crises we are facing in the world, you know, the environmental collapse, collapse of communities, uh, a war. There it's, there's a kind of a, a totalitarianism in terms of the. The, the corporate control and technological expansion, this, exp uh, this system, the technological and capitalist system, you know, has become so monolithic and almost extremist and fundamentalist that it pervades not just the economy, production and consumption, but also the political sphere, media, education, entertainment. So, you know, we need... Um, uh, uh, worldviews that can question this dominance at a very fundamental level uh, and also find alternative uh, ways of organizing society and how we live on, in the planet as, as a species uh, with other species. So I think that these philosophies are very helpful. It doesn't matter. I think the terminology we use is is not as important as the fundamental principles that are helpful in questioning the dominant order, you know, which is based on essentially a dualism of self versus other, rather than based on a fundamental understanding of interdependence, that the self, we become the self in relation to the other, and we are all interconnected, that we are one human family, and that we are also one planet. Uh, Gaia, which is right. a, a, a breathing, living organism, and that we have, we cannot see ourselves as separate from the rest of nature or use nature as just a resource to be used and 
predisposed with, you know, which is the mentality right. which has brought up us to this point of collapse. Right, exactly. And, well, I I like to say here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine, you know, we sort of just put it simply, you know, it's about the we and the us, you know, rather than the I and the me. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I kind of think in a way that sort of encapsulates, um, you know, how most of us, you know, whether we're labeling our beliefs, you know, goddess spirituality or Buddhism Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, it's this idea of, um, you know, we have to make sure there, there's equality, that all of our boats float, that, uh, you know, we just can't care about the 1%. You know, we have to care mm-hmm. uh, as much or more about the, about the 99%, uh, so to speak. But, but let me ask you, um, you know, we, we talk sometimes about, uh, you know, whether we're talking about uh, people who are in goddess spirituality or Christians or Jews or Muslims, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, they're progressives, they're moderates, they're conservatives, you know, there's extremists. Um, is there such a thing, um, I, I mean, do, is Buddhism like that as well, you know, or are there progressive Buddhists uh, as well as, say, extremist or, um, you know, conservative Buddhists, you know, and, and if so, you know, um, are the progressive Buddhists out there uh, where we can hear their voice? Right. You know, just as in all religions, there may be, you know, small groups that are uh, uh, extremists and uh, conservatives, uh, but Buddhism as a philosophy and as a practice historically has been uh, very much nonviolent and very much about tolerance and upholding uh, diversity. And uh, so... uh, you know, that's the essence of both the teachings and the historical tradition. And partly because of uh, that tolerance, uh, in many places Buddhism also got wiped out, like, for example, in India, where the Buddha taught uh, Buddhism was essentially wiped out uh, and it was preserved in neighboring countries, and that was um, so there is sort of a tension within the culture about uh, the tolerance and acceptance of diversity and nonviolence and also, you know, the preservation of the culture and the teachings. And I think that's a t- uh, tension that exists in uh, many religions. Right, right. So, so let me ask you, how do you put these three philosophies, Buddhism, feminism, ecology, how do you put these into practice on the personal level? Right. I mean, it's, um, I think that in terms of sort of looking at the, uh, the essence of these uh, uh, worldviews, one way to kind of bring them together is to even go beyond the critique of technology and capitalism to a more fundamental understanding of the values that have guided this what we call the domination paradigm of you know basically this dualism based on self versus other and that the only way for the self to survive and thrive is to dominate over or even in the Extreme way, extinguish the other. 
whereas in these philosophies of Buddhism, ecology, and feminism by this, I mean not so much the liberal feminism, but the more uh, radical branches of feminism like ecofeminism uh, uphold the partnership that, uh, you know, we all are connected to each other and our, my own well-being is intimately connected with the well-being of the other so that as much as conflict and violence are also part of nature, that as human beings we have to use our consciousness, our wisdom, and have an ethical intelligence where we put the partnership, uh, where we develop the partnership uh, approach uh, for our benefit and benefit of all. And I think we've come to that point in our historical evolution where we have to make a very conscious kind of transition to making the partnership aspects much stronger than the domination aspect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think what we see happen so often, um, and is that people really aren't necessarily reconciling their spirituality with their politics. You know, they mm-hmm. say they believe one thing, you know, spiritually uh, or from a religious standpoint, mm-hmm. but they don't carry that through. Right. Um, to, yeah. Again, uh, how how they vote. Right. There is, again, this uh, uh, kind of a dualism, um, although for some, you know, they, they talk about sort of uh, spirituality and religion, but in a very sort of uh, self-centered way, rather than incorporating all of humanity, you think in terms of just your group. Um, but religious teachers, whether it was the Buddha or Jesus and other teachers, have always asked people to develop that uh, compassion and wisdom to incorporate all. Um, And also that even on the progressive sides, there is a tendency to kind of separate our daily or spiritual practice from activism and to see activism as a sort of a separate thing or we do it on the side, uh, whereas we've come to a point where we can't make those distinctions. It's um, about how we live. It's not something to be postponed yeah. into the future, okay, that the future, more community-based, ecological way of living. I know it's very difficult to, to move towards that living in a world that is sort of going in the other direction, but I think that there are individuals and uh, uh, movements that recognize the urgency of m- making that shift in our minds and trying to move in that direction. And I think there are more efforts uh, than uh, the mainstream media recognizes, you know, in terms of, you know, those, those kinds of progressive efforts. So, well, speaking of these social movements, um, are are there social movements that represent um, Buddhism, feminism, and ecology? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. I mean, and they've been there historically. For example, in India, the what is known as the Chipko movement, um, uh, Chipko meaning hugging, uh, uh, trees 
that movement to stop deforestation and cutting down of forests uh, was started by indigenous women. Uh, you know, they were not people with lots of uh, uh, Western-type education, but it came from the indigenous traditions as well as the feminine uh, roles of protection, protection of communities, protection of uh, Mother Nature. And the same kind of thing is being practiced even today in Southeast Asia by Buddhist monks who are symbolically ordaining trees, again, to stop them from being cut down by loggers. So, you know, there's a kind of coming together of uh, ecological protection, environmental protection, and, you know, using the Buddhist philosophy of nonviolence and... Uh, uh, to to engage in social action uh, in Bhutan, right. for example, uh, there is a, and that's a small Himalayan kingdom. Uh, in the constitution itself, there is a, a, a commitment to a carbon neutral policy. Um, so there's a these are some of. Uh, uh, movement that would be sort of labeled as either Buddhist or uh, feminist or eco-feminist uh, or Buddhist uh, uh, ecological movements, but there are many others that don't necessarily call themselves as such or fall into those categories, but essentially following that same kind of thinking and values, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Well, well, let me ask you, as, as far as, you know, about gender or the feminism aspect of Buddhism, um, you know, and, 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 and look, I am the first one to say I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, I do know there have been a lot of cases where, um, you know, Buddhist nuns, for instance, um, you know, they've been marginalized uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, not, not given the same stature as, say, the male monk. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so I wonder, is that, is, you know, it, is, is that improving uh, as well as, you know, can you, you know, or Buddhist communities, um, you know, it, it, can we, uh, are they egalitarian, you know, um, or is there still sort of this, um, uh, you know, patriarchal kind of uh, um a tendency uh, among the genders. Oh, yes. I mean, it's very much there. Although, as I said before, in the Buddha's time, you know, he uh, said that both male and female, and regardless of caste, regardless of age, uh, social status, that liberation and awakening was open to all, that it required, you know, the the practice and commitment, and then the female order being uh, uh, instituted was a, you know, major transformation. But, of course, you know, over time, there have been sort of patriarchal traditions that have been introduced, and although there is a movement and attempts to reinstitute the female uh, monastic order, and there have been successes. Uh, towards that. And, of course, you know, there is uh, the so-called Western Buddhism in which, too, you know, there are these contradictions in terms of uh, 
both gender lines, race and class, and, and so on and so forth. And I guess you can see that in many other religious traditions as well, you know, these social differentiation and hierarchies coming in, even when the original philosophy is very much egalitarian. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here um, and uh, let uh, my listeners hear a word uh, from Joe Carson. Uh, But when we get back, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Buddhism in the West and uh, Mm -hmm. if and, uh, you know, hear your opinion on if it, uh, you know, helps us transform the world in a positive direction and you know maybe talk a little bit about uh, the bodhisattva uh, Kuan Yin too so um, so that's where we'll go uh, when we uh, when we come back but um, hang on listeners and uh, uh, hear from Joe Carson Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast, and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Just a reminder that um, the DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini book, which goes even deeper into uh, all the material that uh, they've just described. And you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at the website, uh, dancingwithgaia.com. So uh, we're going to get back to our chat tonight about um, the uh, connection between the philosophies of uh, Buddhism, feminism, uh, and ecology with uh, our guest, uh, Ashoka Bandaragay. 
Um, so uh, we were saying before we took our break um, that uh, we were going to sort of take the conversation in the direction uh, about Buddhism in the West. Um, you know, how is it different than the East, and does it help uh, change the world or, or move it in a more positive direction, in your opinion? Well, even Buddhism in, in the West is also multifaceted. It's, it's not one thing. There are people, you know, who are serious Buddhist scholars, serious meditators, and who are really sort of practicing in a very deep way and applying that to their lives. So it's, uh, I don't want to generalize uh, 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 all of uh, sort of Western Buddhism, so to speak, but what passes as Buddhism in the West is mostly focusing on mindfulness movement, you know, which has become very mainstream and popularized, um, which has a lot of positive things about it in the sense that it's helpful in terms of stress uh, reduction, in dealing with problems like addiction, and it's been used with uh, school children, Vietnam uh, vets, so on and so forth. So it's, it's very helpful. But there are limitations uh, because it's taken just one aspect of the teaching, focusing on awareness, leaving aside, leaving out a lot of other aspects in terms of morality and ethics and wisdom because the Buddhist teaching is also the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the sam- Sati, the awareness part, is just one aspect of a much larger framework. So what happens is when it's just focusing on mindfulness, it can be used uh, as a way of sort of helping people cope in this very stressful uh, world that we live in. So even corporations and even militaries are using sort of mindfulness techniques as to uh, increase productivity, increase profitability, and comparative advantage. Uh, so what happens then is it becomes a way of trying to maintain the system rather than changing the system in a more fundamental way. So uh, that sort of becomes problematic. I mean, mindfulness has become uh, such a cliche that, you know, you have people trying to sell uh, Colonel Sanders KFC chicken using mindfulness language, you know, and um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, it, yeah. So 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 you're trying to just cope with things as they are, as opposed to uh, actually being an activist and uh, you know to try to change the status quo. Right. It has it has a very kind of individualistic kind of uh, approach rather than using mindfulness as also a tool for social action. I mean, there is no denying that it's very important to have tools for people to to survive in this sort of very addictive culture, this very stressful culture. So it's positive. But then how do we use it not to kind of intensify that individualism and fragmentation, but to use this as a tool for opening and broadening the consciousness and bringing it to a uh, social level for social transformation. 
Uh, yeah. So that's yeah, so some we're, of the work. we're missing mm-hmm. we're, we're we're missing a lot of the wisdom. You know, we, it's we're kind of just looking at Buddhism uh, as a shadow or a shell of uh, of the of the whole, so to speak. Right, right, and the ethical dimension is missing. For example, in the Buddhist teachings, uh, there is a. a, a a precept of right livelihood. So if you honor right livelihood, you know, can you also at the same time support militarism, uh, the uh, gun trade, uh, the weapons trade, so on and so forth. So that, you know, these, the teachings can be applied to sort of uh, understanding these, uh, the social problems, but that connection is not sufficiently made. And I think to some extent you can say the same thing about uh, uh, feminism and ecology in the more radical sense, you know, not just about integrating women into the same system uh, as politicians, you know, by raising a l- lot of money, but maybe changing the system by changing, say, campaign finance reform so more women can uh, contest and get into positions, you know, without having to sort of play that same game of having to uh, raise money and then end up serving those moneyed interests rather than the larger constituencies. And the same thing with ecology, like, yeah, liberal environmentalism, many of the large environmental organizations in the United States uh, receive funding from corporations, including fossil fuel companies. So then, you know, yeah. they are not able to really call for the kind of um, radical changes that are necessary if we are to confront uh, the uh, climate change and other uh, environmental problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've 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 had folks on the show who've you know we've talked about Christianity, for instance, and you know some of the ministers, uh, you know, say that you know they they know uh, that some of the teachings are skewed, um, but it would be too controversial uh, to make a correction, so to speak, uh, because they need to keep the people in the pews and the money coming in. Mm. So they kind of just keep things on a, you know, on a status quo basis, you know, rather than rock the boat and be controversial. So, you know, in, in some cases it feels like it always does come down to the money. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, but if more and more people are questioning that and taking risks and actually trying to change the way we live or use our our power as consumers and, uh, and you know, and also as uh, voters uh, in terms of who we elect into office, you know, I think that that, that control by the corporations and moneyed interests by that very small percentage can be reversed, but that calls for these different uh, uh, progressive uh, movements coming together, and that's why for me just even trying to look at sort of a convergence of Buddhism, feminism, and ecology is helpful, you know, in terms of, you know, seeing that unity of, uh, uh, and of vision that, that is called for. Right. 
Yeah, and you know, I and and I'm glad you said that because that's kind of a passion of mine too, to encourage solidarity. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to you know, to I, I mean, I was just given a talk Sunday at the Museum of Woman about how you know FDR uh, was pushed into creating the social safety net by the divergent. Uh, in a way, um, you know, factions of progressive Christianity, unions, communists, and socialists. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. came together, even though, you know, they have, you know, they're very different on, on some things. You know, they came together and, you know, in solidarity and pushed FDR to, uh, you know, create what we know as social security and, you know, worker protections, you know, the social safety net. And I think one of the things we do wrong uh, in, at right now is we don't see um, uh, what you know we, we, we can't recognize our allies you know and mm-hmm. I think you're saying the same thing you know mm-hmm. we might look at you know uh, we might just off the top of our head think well a Buddhist couldn't possibly be um, you know ideologically in alignment with a feminist but right. gee yeah they can <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look at the fundamentals and that unity of vision and values, and that's why, you know, I sometimes I'm reluctant to even use the term Buddhism because that's not so important. It is the universal ethic, uh, universal ethic, ethical intelligence, uh, upholding of environmental, the environment, you know, which is our home and human well-being that cuts across all these different uh, uh, these divisions, because what has happened today, yeah, yeah. you know, these ethno-religious divisions and identity politics has gotten so much attention, but not the, uh, uh, and it takes attention away from the econo- deepening economic inequality. And if you look at many instances, you find that these ethno-religious divisions are actually instigated because, you know, that keeps people you know, fighting each other rather than coming together right. uh, to confront this uh, extreme sort of uh, uh, m- uh, control of resources by a few and then, you know, its implications for the environment and human communities all over. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're saying let's get past the labels. And, you know, mm-hmm. I saw a great example of that uh, in this uh, this little snippet from Oprah. Um, mm-hmm. She was interviewing these uh, these women from, uh, I forget which Scandinavian country it was. It might have been Sweden or Norway. And um, now Oprah was talking about socialism. And now mm-hmm. I don't know whether Oprah... Uh, you know, whether Oprah really didn't know the answers or whether she was kind of playing dumb uh, because mm. she wanted the audience to understand. Mm. But she but she said to the Scandinavian women, you know, she said, uh, so you don't have a problem being a socialist? And mm-hmm. the women said, you know, we're not stuck on labels. You know, right. we believe what, you know, we believe our government um, you know, is humane, and that's mm-hmm. what's important to us, no mm-hmm. matter what you want to call us. And right, you know, that's, right. I think that's what you're what you're saying too. You know, let's uh, let's forget the labels, yes. and you know, let let let's see what we have in common. Um, right, absolutely. So, um, and 
Because a lot of religions, you know, I mean, share a lot of basic values, and that is often forgotten, you know, in this sort of divisive atmosphere, and that's why it's really important for groups to come together. I work with a group called the Interfaith Moral Action on Climate, which tries to speak with one voice about uh, environment issue as a moral and ethical issue, Uh, you know, cutting across all these uh, religious uh, divisions, and, you know, it's it's a very important uh, uh, approach, uh, you know, that needs, you know, much more support to to move it forward. Right, right. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we have about uh, 15 minutes left, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about the feminine face of Buddhism. I mean, the uh, when I was in Japan, um, you know, I learned about canon, and, of course, uh, I knew about Kuan Yin before I, you know, made it over to, uh, you know, made it over to Asia. Um, and, you know, we've had these wonderful um, uh, presentations about, you know, the rice goddess, who mm-hmm. I'm not sure always has a particular name, you know, in, in different parts of Asia. I mean, what, what uh, is the feminine face of Buddhism? Yeah, I think that from the, you know, different, um, within Buddhism, there are three or four different major strands referred to as the the vehicles, the three yanas, or some people say four yanas. Um, and in each, you know, there are sort of different cultural variations depending on where the Buddhism evolved. But the, in the Theravada tradition, the early uh, tradition that, you know, I come out of, um, women have had a very important role from the beginning. Uh, the Buddha's uh, aunt uh, was the first uh, woman to be ordained in the uh, in the female order, and after that, you know, lots of other women uh, were ordained, and they played. And not only the the nuns, but the female lay disciples played a very important role in the uh, propagation of the teachings and uh, its survival. And one person that comes to mind is Mother Visaka, who was the Buddha's chief uh, uh, female uh, disciple. And um, she was an extremely generous donor, and her generosity was very instrumental in terms of uh, the the spread of the teachings, and many of the Buddha's uh, very important discourses were given at the uh, the monasteries that she established. And uh, uh, so there's a whole tradition of that. I mean, I went to a school in Sri Lanka, which is called Visaka, named after this uh, uh, chief uh, benefactress of the Buddha. So that tradition sort of continues, and women have been very important in the the maintenance of the tradition although as you know you pointed out earlier that uh, you know over time there's been sort of gender hierarchies that have uh, uh, come into play but we are at a time when the female order is again being uh, resuscitated and some Buddhist monks are not happy about it but um, also, a lot of women who are uh, meditators and, you know, achieved very high uh, 
levels of uh, uh, wisdom. So that uh, those traditions are, have always been important and, and they are uh, persisting. Okay, okay. Um, and, um, you know, for I, I want to make sure we have time to talk about your workshops. Uh, but mm-hmm. before we do, uh, let's, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you something about uh, – uh, about your book, uh, mm-hmm. Sustainability and Well-Being, uh, The Middle Path to Environment, Society, and the Economy. Um, is it possible to sort of give us a nutshell explanation of what the middle path is that you discuss in your book? Yeah, very briefly. Now, in the Buddha's teaching, the whole of the teaching is referred to as the middle path. Uh, that is the path that he advise people to follow, which is a path that avoids both extremes, one of sort of sensual uh, gratification and overindulgence, and the other of extreme self-denial. So it is not an extremely ascetic path like many people believe it is, because maybe some of the forest monks uh, may pursue a very ascetic path, but, but particularly for the lay people, you know, he advocated uh, a householder's life, which involved, you know, sort of uh, the roles as householders, income earners, uh, parents, uh, spouses, uh, employers, employees, and so on. But in all of that, to be guided by the ethics of sort of generosity, compassion, and wisdom. So oftentimes, this middle path is interpreted as just something to be followed at the individual level, that we don't consume too much, nor do we sort of deny ourselves uh, too much, sort of the extremes of overconsumption or underconsumption. But this middle path teaching can also be applied at the societal level in terms of how we organize production and consumption and property relations, so that instead of a 1% controlling uh, more than 90, uh, what is owned by 99% of the rest of humanity, which is the current state of affairs, uh, to have you know a more equitable distribution so that the people at the bottom, like that 20% who don't have enough to eat or have, don't have access to education or health care, can also get their needs met. And in order to do that, we have to have, you know, uh, a different kind of uh, a more balanced, uh, just uh, distribution of wealth. And also in terms of economic growth model that we are living under, this sort of based on extreme unbridled growth and unbridled technological expansion, you know, we need a more balanced approach to that, which is not to say it, it has to be totally anti-technology or anti-market, but we have to have sort of guide uh, uh, more regulation in terms of uh, putting environmental sustainability and human well-being uh, before, you know, uh, just blind economic growth and a very narrow interpretation of uh, development and progress. So that's what you know, I try well, to explore I- I- in the book. Well, you know, I, I think you I think you're making the case for common ground. Certainly, uh, you know, I think everything you've said uh, I can agree with a hundred percent because uh, it's it's ridiculous how 
uh, in the last few decades, you know, we've been turned uh, into consumers, you know, rather than citizens. And, um, you know, we judge our wealth uh, by our assets, you know, you know, rather than maybe the good we do in the world or the quality of person we are. Uh, we, we've really gotten way off track. And um, I don't know, I, I hope I'm not throwing you a curve here, but I wonder if you've given any thought to what it's going to take to, um, you know, wake up uh, enough people to to really make some, you know, change that's going to make a difference. Well, thank you for asking that question because in addition to that, we are also being turned into appendages of technology as we are becoming extensions of technology. You know, it's said that by the year 2030 there will be more, more robots in the workforce than human beings, and human beings are being displaced, and that by the year uh, around 2050, that most of the animal and plant species would be lab-created forms of plants and uh, animals rather than those found originally in nature. So with the biotechnology and the robotics and the artificial intelligence, that uh, the DNA of living organisms itself is being changed and some people are talking about human beings uh, becoming a transhuman species that is um, you know uh, an extension of nature and this may seem sort of like science fiction and far-fetched but actually this is happening there are people uh, even people working at google who are talking about spiritual machines that we are going to sort of download intelligence and emotion and uh, to machines and as if that is a form of progress. So taking away our agency uh, and ask, you know, making us question what does it mean to be human? Um, what is consciousness? You know, what are our values, ethics? So, you know, we are at a very sort of uh, critical point and people need to sort of realize that rather than seeing a human being as somebody who's constantly looking at a screen uh, where, you know, we have to, I'm not saying that we, we have to do away with computers or dig, digital technology altogether, but there's got to be more of a balance, and that comes from a, a consciousness uh, and people coming together uh, towards a more middle path. You know, what kind of technology? Uh, what is it that we need? You know, who are we as a species? Uh, those are fundamental questions that are not being asked by the corporate uh, 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 decision makers who are driven by the profit motive and the, the short-term interests in developing these kinds of technologies. And I and I think you know added to that you know we have now the corporate owned media, uh, and the messages we get from the media doesn't help us uh, to ask those fundamental questions or to evolve in the uh, you know in the right direction either you know and mm -hmm. uh, and social me in social media you know for all its uh, you know I, I know there are positive sides to it. Um, you know what that can be a pretty shallow place as well um, mm -hmm. you know I wonder uh, you know on, on the one hand it feels hopeless but then on the other hand you know I think about 
um, how much, uh, you know, what an impact Bernie Sanders has had mm-hmm. in just a couple years. You know, um, everybody thought he was crazy, you know, going around before the election, talking about a $15 minimum wage, talking about universal health care, talking about free college, you know, and now suddenly it's happening in places. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, and that's been progress that's happened in a relatively short period the time and I feel like you know he has been incredibly instrumental in changing the hearts and minds of people and you know maybe that can continue you know um, it's it to help us uh, start asking these more fundamental questions and demanding that we strike this balance uh, rather than continue uh, to uh, you know, sort of let corporations run amok, and we have this unfettered growth that can't be sustained. Absolutely. You know, I'm so glad uh, you're bringing these up because, you know, we have to exercise our power as consumers and citizens uh, in terms of changing the political structure, you know, uh, as the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, movement, because it was a social movement uh, that represented, then there are also uh, movements that are trying to change from the bottom up the way we live, like uh, uh, creating local futures. There's an alliance for localization. There is something called the transition movement, you know, of trans, uh, not just talking about it or postponing the transition, but actually doing it. Um, from uh, creating local economies, you know, based on uh, renewable sources of energy and uh, local food production, the local food sovereignty movement. So, you know, I don't have a lot of time to get into the details of this. There is a lot happening in terms of uh, uh, people waking up, and that is not going to get much attention from the dominant media. So the work that people like you are doing is so important to uh, get people to think and connect because this uh, work is not just about our individual selves. It's not just about our generation, but the future uh, generations and and the survival of the planet. Yeah. So my final question before we talk about your workshop uh, at CIIS coming up in uh, June, uh, for listeners who are hearing us and maybe want to plug in and learn about, um, uh, you know, these hopeful movements out there, um, have you written about them in your book or do you have a recommendation uh, where they can go to find some of this information in case they want to learn more or get involved? Sure. You know, I mean, I have referred to them in my writings, both in my book, The Sustainability and Well-Being, and also some of the other things that I've written in the Huffington Post and so on, and they're on, you know, most of those are mentioned in my website, which is uh, mylastname.com, www.bandarage.com. But in terms of two initiatives, there is the uh, Alliance for Localization, which is also local futures, and, you know, they have a website. Um, that, you know, has a lot of information. And then there is uh, what is called the transition movement, which started in England, which has now spread across Europe and also into other countries of people, you know, trying to uh, live sustainably, 
sustainably and in uh, community, but also they talk about inner transition, that in order to make this social transition that we have to make this transformation of consciousness. And, of course, they're not Buddhist, but what they're talking about is very much along Buddhist or ecological or feminist lines. So, um, you know, that's a, a very important movement, and I think their efforts uh, to, uh, to uh, generate that, those kinds of efforts in the United States as well. Okay. Um, so your workshop uh, is coming up uh, June 23rd and 24th uh, in San Francisco at CIIS, uh, California Institute of Integral Studies. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what those two days are going to be about and um, uh, how people can sign up if they want to know more? Yes, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. Um, so there's an evening talk on Friday, I think that's the 23rd of June, where I sort of present uh, this sort of two worldviews, the, uh, the, the technological capitalist worldview, which sees, you know, the environment and society as sort of resource to be used, and the other worldview, the ecological worldview, which says that uh, the economy is not the dominant sector. It is that it operates within uh, the environment and society, and to sort of that is the reality. Whereas this uh, technological uh, ca uh, capitalist framework is being presented as a dominant one, which is trying to integrate human beings and the environment within within that. So it, it's a fundamental kind of a. A, a shift, and you know, I explore that, you know, in terms of sort of historical evolution and contemporary movements, etc. Then the workshop, um, I focus uh, on social movements as well as individual transformation. Um, I teach a course on mindfulness and social action. I'll be teaching that at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. in the fall. And what I'm trying to do there is move beyond this sort of limited approach of the Western mindfulness movement uh, to seeing how the concepts of uh, the broader Buddhist teachings, not just awareness and concentration, but also equanimity and social action can be generalized in, in terms of how we live um, and to bring the two together. Uh, the, the inner and the outer transformation, and then use these examples and explore, for, for example, the transition movement and local futures and other uh, examples from around the world, and how you know how we can try to generate that wherever we are, because it's going to take many different forms, because each person is different despite uh, the uh, unity of our experience. We come from very different backgrounds and traditions. So how we approach it would be different, the, the transformation. But if the underlying values and, and the vision is the same, I think we'll be able to uh, absorb that uh, diversity. Um, so, you know, it would be an exploration of that, and hopefully people can go home with some very specific tools that they can use, you know, in their lives on a day-to-day -day basis and in their 
uh, work towards social action. Okay. And uh, if they do want to sign up, uh, where do they go? Yeah, they can go to the website of uh, public programs of uh, the California Institute for Integral Studies. Uh, the acronym is CIIS. And under public programs, you know, uh, this comes up and, and you sign up online. Okay, or it's I called Sustaining call Activism well. yes. and and, and uh, sustaining activism and well-being. Um, now, for folks who aren't in the San Francisco area, I'm just wondering, do you ever do online classes or maybe uh, videotape your talks and, uh, uh, you know, maybe make those, uh, you know, DVDs available uh, for a small charge or something? Have you ever thought about doing that? Well, I have some of these uh, past presentations on my website, uh, bandarge.com, but, you know, I'm also open to uh, doing workshops at other places. I've done online teaching for California Institute for Integral Studies, although I always prefer, you know, face-to-face uh, -face interaction because it's much more personal and, you know, in, in some ways it sort okay. of goes against uh, what I'm saying. Um, but, you know, I'm, you know, open to uh, uh, doing workshops in other places and where necessary uh, online work as well. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for the conversation tonight. Um, you know, I've enjoyed it, and uh, I think you've brought up some really uh, great points that, uh, you know, give us all some food for thought. So, you know, best of luck to you with uh, with your new books and, uh, and and with your workshops. And, you know, let's, uh, let's keep in touch, and uh, if ever I can uh, have you back on the show with a new topic or new information, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me, okay? Okay, Karen, thank you so much, and thank you so much for the wonderful work you're doing. It's so uplifting and inspiring, and, you know, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Good, Bye. Good night. Bye. Um, Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that, and you know I want to just go ahead and uh, give you the title of uh, of some of her books again. Uh, the one we were uh, referring to a lot tonight was Sustainability and Well-Being: uh, The Middle Path to Environment, Society, and the Economy. Uh, I'm sure you can find a lot of her writings on the Huffington Post, and uh, her other books, uh, you know, focus on uh, Sri Lanka, uh, colonialism in Sri Lanka, the separatist conflict in Sri Lanka, but she's also got women, population, uh, and global crisis. Um, you know, lots of really good stuff. Um, you know, obviously, uh, she's incredibly dedicated and what, uh, you know, what an awesome, um, uh, you know, credentials. Uh, you know, it's, it's my great pleasure to have had her on the show tonight. Um, so before we go, uh, as I promised, uh, let's uh, turn our attention to the two stories that Pat, uh, the Voices of the Sacred Feminine roving reporter, uh, sent in to me to share with you. Uh, the first one uh, we'll talk about uh, is the good news uh, for the Inju River dolphins. Um, and uh, this was uh, on Dooney, uh, Dunya News. Uh, I think uh, out of Pakistan, actually, and uh, uh, the reporter was Malia Mengal. Um, 
and this is, uh, you know, this is uh, this is the update here. Uh, World uh, World Wildlife Federation, Pakistan, and an international researcher, Dr. Jillian Brawlick, have been working on a program for the conservation of the Indu River dolphin since 1999. The hard work of more than 15 years has finally shown some hope of preservation of these intelligent mammals, locally known as Bulan. Uh, who have been classified as an endangered species. Almost over 100 years ago, the Indu River dolphin swam freely to as far as the Himalayas, which has declined to 80% since that time, and now they retain uh, a very now that they retain to a very thin area toward Punjab and Sindh, S-I-N-D-H. Uh, found in just a small portion of the Indu River bed, Bulan are now found in a small stretch of the river belt from Sindh to Punjab and a small portion of Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa. Sorry about that. I don't know how to say that. Uh, the major reason for these dolphins ending up on the list of endangered species in the construction of uh, barges along the river dividing the population into five subpopulations. Their population was also affected due to water pollution, being stranded in irrigation canals and accidentally being caught in fishing nets. Um, these mammals are important for many factors, but the most important one is that they are an indicator of the health of the ecosystem of the river because they are on the top of the food chain. Pakistan is uh, special because these kinds of particular dolphins are not found anywhere else in the world. River dolphins are unlike any other dolphins. They're biologically and behavior-wise very different from whales and sea dolphins. Uh, speaking on the uniqueness of the dolphins, Dr. Brawlick said they are unique because of the way they swim on their sides. Uh, the movement of Bulan, the dolphins, was first noticed in captivity in clear water. They're very clever and they have a strong social bonding. Their brains are incredibly sophisticated with them communicating in their own special language. Indu dolphins are incredibly special because they are the only ones that are increasing in number while the rest of the freshwater dolphins elsewhere are in critical numbers. Speaking on the key threats to Indy River dolphins, Ayesha pointed out that uh, barges are blocking most of the animals' movements, with them being sometimes stuck in small passages or in shallow parts of water. Uh, though the population of these dolphins has been increasing for the future, more initiatives need to be taken to ensure that these numbers remain the same while strengthening the conservation efforts which need more research in the field. Um, well, you know, uh, sounds like uh, that's instead of one step forward, two steps back, at least we've got a step forward there. And uh, the other... Um, News comes from uh, South Carolina, uh, and uh, this uh, this article was in the Daily Coast, and uh, I'm looking for the name of the person who wrote it, uh, but I don't see anything but Eyesbright, Eyesbright community. Uh, anyway, uh, the story goes like this. We've, as I said at the opening, we found some Democrats with some spine. Uh, it was a rare legislative win for Democrats in a state where Republicans have had control of both the House and the Senate since the turn of the 21st century. South Carolina's Democratic state senators know how to use the rules there quite 
quite effectively. Democrats are very much the minority in the South Carolina State Senate, where there's uh, 28 Republicans versus 18 Democrats. So uh, at 1 a.m. Friday, after three days of debate and facing a Democratic filibuster with no end in sight, Senate Republicans gave in. A bill that would have outlawed virtually all abortions in South Carolina was killed Friday morning after the Senate GOP majority failed on a fourth try to sit down the Democrats who were keeping it from getting a final vote. Um, so anyway, that goes on a bit, but um, you know, kudos to these uh, Democrats that uh, didn't just roll over and play dead or uh, bring a covered dish to a gunfight, as they so often seem to do. Well, uh, that about does it uh, for us tonight. I uh, just want to tell you that I will be back on the 23rd, uh, not next Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. My guest will be uh, Rachel Pudelik, and uh, our topic is going to be the empowered woman. And uh, we're also going to be talking a bit about uh, her new book that's out. Uh, it's a, a fiction book um, called Freya's Daughter. Um, Rachel's, uh, she describes herself as a dog hugger and a tree lover. And, um, you know, in her novel, Freya's Daughter uh, is a feminist novel. So we're going to talk about that uh, with the show topic, again, as I said, called The Empowered Woman. Well, uh, thank you all uh, very much uh, for tuning in tonight. I, I hope you will uh, definitely hit the follow button on my show page so that you get notice of uh, each show uh, rather than relying on maybe to get an email from me or uh, catch wind of a show um, that you might like to hear on Facebook. Uh, that way you will know exactly uh, what's happening and what guest uh, you know, is going to be on on uh, you know on my show on a regular basis. That way, you can tune in uh, at your convenience from the archives. And uh, as I've said before, uh, what we uh, nurture, what we put our attention in, you know, to it thrives, and what we neglect withers. Uh, so I would just like to close by saying, if uh, this show has been beneficial to you, um, if it's been your lifeline, as many of you say, uh, if you feel it uplifts you and uh, provides the kind of voice uh, you want to hear out there in the world. You know, if it is the spring that feeds you, uh, please support the show. Uh, and you can do that by um, hitting the follow button, uh, telling your friends to listen, uh, by sharing uh, links to, um, you know, the, the different uh, interviews we've done uh, around social media. And, of course, uh, you can always go to my website, KarenTate.com, and you can make a donation there through PayPal uh, by going to um, the page on the website called the Goddess Store page. Just scroll all the way down to the very bottom. The very last PayPal button lets you make a donation of any amount. Uh, and any amount is most appreciated. Uh, so uh, in closing tonight, um, we're going to uh, bring just a little bit uh, more music to you. Uh, let's see, we, 
uh, had uh, Celia's uh, meta prayer uh, to start the show. Uh, why don't I go ahead and let you listen to the whole uh, single? So this is Celia's meta prayer, uh, rather than just a snippet, the whole thing. So please enjoy and uh, come back to us on May 23rd, uh, and I look forward to having you with us then. Good night. 